be acutely aware and stay tuned acutely for the disgruntled employee. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host, and I am delighted again to have my partner in my law firm, Nelson Mullins, Bart Daniel, join us on this discussion regarding the CARES Act, COVID, and also the prosecution that's going to occur in the future, you know, based upon the federal dollars that were provided to individuals, corporations, healthcare entities, et cetera. So before we get into the questions, Bart, I just want you to introduce yourself and, and your area of focus. I'm Bart Daniel. I've been practicing law for a long time. My area of focus is uh, white-collar crime and civil fraud cases with an emphasis on uh, health care, and that's health care false claims act cases and health care uh, criminal uh, cases. And that health care is about, and health care related is about 60% of my practice. It can take, takes about 60% of my time, and actually that's growing to be close to 70% now. And you've had experience in the, the banking failures of the past and also with respect to the COVID pandemic. And as we all know, March the 15th of 2020, the world changed with inside the, the United States. There was a lockdown because of COVID. And then because of the financial strains that were occurring that and in March the 27th of 2020, the CARES Act was signed into law in order to help and support employers, including healthcare entities, in order to survive this pandemic. So my first question, Bart, is generally describe what is the CARES Act? The CARES Act was is actually stands for uh, COVID Aid Relief and the Economic Securities Act. And as you said, uh, it's, it passed into law in 2000, March of 2020. And what the CARES Act does is Congress decided, and including the presidency, that they wanted to be able to protect employers and employees, particularly their jobs. Okay, And how they did that really was through three different programs. And each of these programs was going to expand vast sums of money to support employers employers to keep and maintain their employees working. And so the first is what we call the PPP or the Paycheck Protection Program. And that was simply sums of money were expanded 
to give employers money so they could keep pay people on the payroll to help to help employers make payroll. And then also the PPP money could be used for uh, operating expenses. So with PPP, Paycheck Protection Program, you had to use the money for payroll, number one, employee, pay, pay, employee paychecks, number one, and number, or number two, to be able to pay operational expenses. Keep the light on. Pay the, the, the expenses that were associated with keeping the business in business. So that's the Paycheck Protection Program. The, the second component of the CARES Act to provide these great sums of money to, individ, to individual employers was what they called an Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. And it was very similar to the CARES Act. And you had to make a showing, particularly that you were, you were using the money to help rebuild the business and to dig out of the hole that COVID did. And I think you've done a nice job of setting up the scene Going back, we have to backpedal to March 2020. And in March 2020, the world seemed to stop. Yep. And, and many times people lose re recollection. They can say, well, it was before COVID. I know that. <laughs> before <laughs> March 2020. Or it's been since COVID, which is really not so long ago because it lasted some two years for all of us. And, yeah, so and, I, think, and I think most most of our listeners just packed up their offices and moved back home during that time. So that, and yeah. no, no doubt about it. And, and as we, and we're still experiencing the impact and the effects of that packing up and working from home. Because many young employer young employees, as well as those that aren't here so young, have decided it's I can work at home just as easily as I can go to the office and bite the traffic every day. And some companies and some large corporations, you hear you see Amazon or hear Amazon complaining about it and Microsoft complaining about it. Law firms are complaining about it, hospitals are complaining about it. Many workers simply do not want to report back to an office. And so that that has that's sort of been the remnants, if you will, uh, of the uh, COVID that we went through. So we have the Paycheck Protection Program (PPP). That's one component. The second component was the EIDL, Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. And the third, it's not so much covered here because it's a little bit different twist to it, is the ERC or Employee Retention Credit Program. And the ERC was intended to encourage COVID hospital businesses to keep the workers on the payroll in 20 and 21. And it's interesting because that is even if, if those workers were unable to work or did not show up for work. So in 2020, employers could claim a credit of up to $5,000 per employee on the payroll. In 2021, that 5,000 was increased to 7,000 per employee. And as the IRS discovered only immediately thereafter when the returns were filed for those years that this particular ERC credits were ripe for fraud. And as they said, enforcement must be a high, high priority. And that's the very top, top of the IRS. And they compared it to the, to the remainder of the CARES Act, just as they'd experienced so many COVID fraud or CARES Act fraud cases. So that's sort of the backdrop of the relief programs and the sums of the money. And what do we always say? Every time I've been on this Bobcat, this podcast with you, Bob, is 
follow the money. <laughs> Congress exactly. spends great sums of money. Enforcement is sure to follow. So the question from that perspective, Bart, is has the government been aggressive to date with respect to any financial payments that were paid by the federal government under the CARES Act? The short answer is yes, they have. The, the government spent on, court, on CARES Act funding, it looks like they've dispersed more than $1.2 trillion. And since then, they have prosecuted over 1,000 criminal cases and over 1,500 civil fraud cases, getting the money back. And that's sort of put people in the penitentiary and then try to get back as much as the money in the forms of restitution and more and, and penalties involved in these fraud cases as they can. Yep. And I think the point of this podcast is that the statute of limitations, and for those non-lawyers that are you know, listening to this podcast, the statute of limitations is the time period during which a case needs to be brought. Otherwise, it's stale and you cannot file the case. So there, there's been an extension, Bart, uh, for, to 10 years. What's the significance of that? In effect, it was doubled from five years to 10 years. And in the effect of that, is that these prosecutions that would have been up in 2025 and 2026, and perhaps even some in 2027 of CARES Act fraud, these prosecutions are going to go on for 10 years from the date of the last act, the last fraudulent act, or the last, if it's a conspiracy, if it's a CARES Act fraud conspiracy, then it would be the last, what they call an overt act, uh, including any sort of attempt to hide, conceal, or cover up. The fraud that occurred. And so it's, could could that be the receipt of payment or the filing of the claim to the government? It could. Well, the, it's actually the last, the very last. So, so you would say the receipt of the payments, but it could be even stretched out perhaps longer than that. It could be the expenditure of the funds. It could be tracing the funds into the la- very last transaction that that lot of funds or that tranche of funds came under. So what what type of oversight did uh, the Congress provide? Uh, for the CARES Act, for these, okay. these expenditure of the, you know, again, I, I want to emphasize what Bart just said, $1.2 trillion. Uh, so that's coming yeah. out of my taxpayer dollars. What type of oversight uh, well, do they provide? Yeah, you know, it's often said that a page of history is worth a library law of books. And, <laughs> exactly. and no true no truer words were spoken than we looked, we have no farther to look than how the tor- the TARP program, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which gave reliefs to the banks of the based on, uh, as a result of the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. TARP was passed. And TARP did a very similar thing, as I mentioned. They expended billions of dollars, TARP expended billions of dollars to banks and financial institutions to keep them afloat, simply put, to keep them afloat. And of course, after spending that money, they had enforcement. But what Congress created to be able to oversee this great expenditures of funds was a three-prong approach in the TARP program for oversight. And that is they created, number one, a financial stability oversight board. Number two, a congressional oversight committee. And number three, the one we're most concerned with is that is the Special Inspector General for TARP funds known as SIGTARP, Special Inspector General. The funds were allocated to hire new agents and prosecutors, 
and these new positions were backfilled with experienced FBI and Office of Inspector General agents and seasoned federal prosecutors. So the same three-prong approach was created to oversee the CARES Act. So in addition to creating an inspector general, uh, which Congress did, every U.S. attorney's office in the COVID fraud cases has now created a COVID fraud task force. It was a Department of Justice requirement. And what they did, they were able to hire new assistant U.S. attorneys, new federal prosecutors, and new agents. But they took those new agents and they kept them in the offices. They took the most experienced, the most seasons, and they put those on the COVID fraud task force. And, and that becomes important because that COVID fraud task forces actually could meet separately. And they didn't all report, much like TARP, the TARP, what, what, the, what the problem from an enforcement standpoint, at least from a, from a, from a provider standpoint or a financial institution standpoint, with the TARP funds is something that I, is a problem that I predict we're going to feel here. Healthcare providers are going to experience with the CARES Act fraud. Yep. And that is this. When you extend a statute of limitations to 10 years and you give some independence through a special inspector general and then these COVID fraud task forces, which are under this special inspector general in Washington, but they're in the field. And these people, they don't have, they're not required as normal to report to their offices and they work more as a, a team within the offices, okay, with the experienced agents and seasoned prosecutors. So as a result, there's not as much supervision with them. They must produce results. That is for sure. But there's not as much hands-on supervision. And as a result, you know, agents and prosecutors like a give, be, give, being given a free hand, and they like less supervision. And who doesn't <laughs> like being away and not look, being away from the home office and having having um, the supervisor looking over your shoulder? So that what happens then by the extension of that statute of limitations, we saw with the TARP programs, I represent, I'll give you a quick case in point. I represented the CEO, the chief executive officer of a community bank in a thriving community. And it was a very successful community bank. And what happened with TARP, of course, the community bank suffered greatly because they were coastal and all the property that was valued as coastal beachfront property or those property on the beach, the value went down each month. And, and banks, when they make loans, these properties had loans on them. And of course, the values of the property, which is the collateral, went down, 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 and the banks had to go, had to take action. And so that's why the care, excuse me, the tarp that was the tarp was created. But what happened in this coastal town is exactly that. And all these loans got called in, and of course, the borrowers couldn't pay the loans, and the banks had a major, major crisis. And thus the expenditure of the TARP funds to keep them in. But afterwards, of course, follow the money where Congress spends or allocates those funds. You'll see investigations to follow. Very aggressive enforcement in the CARES Act. And you'll see, I think, the same thing in the COVID fraud task uh, Already, Department of Justice has prosecuted over a thousand criminal cases, as I mentioned earlier, and 800, 1,800 civil fraud cases. And that's just in the five years since the act was passed. Within those five it, years, we yeah, have an additional five years. Yeah, and we talk about the, the impact of that. 
are most both most of those cases dealing with the allocation or calculation of FTEs or what's kind of the like leading component that our listeners should be concerned about? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, the pay, it really is uh, the, the most common. OK, it would be the Paycheck Protection Program is the most commonly abused program because they spent such great sums and they spent it with no strings attached. Right. With absolutely yep. no strings attached to all an employer had to do is certify in the application the number of employees and that they were they wanted to stay in business. They were going to use the money. They had to certify they were use the money for the paycheck for the payroll, paycheck protection or use the money for uh, operating expenses to pay the light bill. OK, once they certify that the number of employees, they got so much per employee to keep keep the lights on and to keep the employees working. And I've experienced a difference between well, with healthcare organizations, they have a lot of independent contractors. Right. And and how do they back that number into the FTE count? So yes. I, it, I think that's going to be a major issue because we have to like medical directors for independent physicians, et cetera. That's going to be a major issue looking forward. And the extension of this five years uh, is going to give time for the government to actually pursue those type of cases when they inaccurately report the FTE count under the PPP. That's right. That's right. And the question is, it was that contractor working under supervision work. Did the employer or did the provider was that in prior entitled to include that contractor or that floating employee, if you will, in those numbers to be able to be eligible for that paycheck protection program? What do we see now is, as I mentioned earlier to you, Bob, is during this first five years, the agents, the enforcement, the FBI and Office of Inspector General agents, along with these federal prosecutors, they picked the low-hanging fruit, right? The, the cases that were egregious. There was some, I, was, I saw a case that I was involved in where there were five LLCs uh, applied for it by and one person, used five different LLCs, and only two of them were legitimate. And then in addition to that, one of them came 26 employees, employees when it only had one. So we've seen all across, across the board a case, but cases, again, easy to investigate, easy still to prosecute. Now you get now the shift is turning to the more difficult case. The prosecutors, the prosecutors have gotten better. The agents have gotten more efficient, as you can imagine. And now they're going after more aggressively, more sophisticated fraud. But it's something interesting has developed. And it's the form of serial relators. And you remember when we talked about the False Claims Act and we talk about whistleblowers and it's, it's much to, to, to the chagrin of any healthcare provider because any healthcare provider these days has to always worry about the devil from within, right? And yep. that's the whistleblower. The required disclosures that are filed by borrowers under the CARES Act have been a treasure trove for these serial relators. And these serial relators, are, we call them serial because they just look at public documents. They view public documents and they piece them together, okay? And then they go, it doesn't matter whether they work for you, they can still be a whistleblower. It exactly. doesn't matter whether they did business with you or know anybody in your organization, You're, it doesn't matter. They can file a False Claims Act case, a whistleblower case on behalf of the federal government. The government. And yep. that's what they're doing. They're piecing together these documents. And so you got these serial relators out there. And of course, in addition to that, you've got to worry about if you're a provider, what you always have to worry about, the typical 
insider who's a whistleblower, right? And you usually the form of a disgruntled employee. And many times a disgruntled employee will complain about things that don't matter and they're difficult. They have difficult personalities and nobody at the office really really gets along with them. They don't have many friends within the organization. They're not team players within the organization and they're like a thorn to the side of the organization. And these are the ones that people tend to ignore when they cry what, what many believe is woke, but they discover something and they piece it together with that sort of like a cancer within, cancer within and then they leave and file a false claims act case or a whistleblower case. So that's where you really have to uh, worry about. It. Yeah, and, and that's the reason from a compliance perspective, and that's the reason this podcast exists, is to identify these issues and to provide guidance on how you review those issues. And here I'm going to toot uh, Bart Daniel Horn, uh, as well as Nelson Mullins. We have that capacity and also that expertise in order to review those issues. But whoever you're using as your outside counsel to review these issues, it's important to, as part of your function of an audit review, which is part of the seven components of an effective compliance program to actually review this issue and determine whether or not we believe the documentation submitted is defensible based upon the CARES Act and hopefully either internally using your external expertise, BART, Nelson Mullins, myself, uh, to, to actually help you. I think it's better to take a proactive view versus just reacting if, if you think that you're going to be subject to a potential QUITAM case. We are at the point of the three Captain Integrity Punch Point takeaways, and um, you're familiar with this, and uh, so I'd like to turn this over to you and tell our listeners the three things uh, that are critical with respect to this subject matter. The three Captain Integrity's takeaways today are if you've received COVID fraud funds, CARES Act funds, number one, borrowers should keep and maintain. Okay. They should, if they have records, if they haven't kept them neatly together, they should track down and bring them all together, keep and maintain all the records that would allow them to reconstruct events in the event there's an audit or worse still, a criminal or civil full scale investigation. So, yeah. Keep and maintain those records so you can recreate events. Number two, second takeaway is be on the lookout. Be acutely aware and stay tuned acutely for the disgruntled employee, in particular when that employee makes some sort of complaint that may, you might say it's just another case of this guy or this woman crying wolf. You still need to track it down if it's an employee that's complaining. And because those, as you know, can often become whistleblowers. Amen. So, so you want to be on. And finally, if you hear of your employers, your employees are contacted or former employees. I've got two cases now where former employees were contacted. And I had in-house counsel for a hospital call me up and said, I just learned that a former employee of ours was interviewed by an office of inspector general, HHS agent. Should I be worried? And I said, <laughs> yes, you should be very worried. And now fast forward, we're now representing that provider and trying to deal with the investigation. We're doing our own internal investigation, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, 
to be able to proactively present the best foot forward for the provider. Exactly. So we've come to the end of this episode, and Bart, I would like you to provide our listeners with your contact information so they can get a hold of you. Yes, it's my first of all, my office telephone number is 843-534-4123. That's 5348 My email is bart.daniel at Dot com and I'll spell that for you. It's all lowercase. It's B A R T dot Daniel D A N I E L at Nelson Mullins N E L S O N M U L L I N S Nelson Mullins dot com Bart dot Daniel at Nelson Mullins dot com or you can just Google me and your my name will come up and you can go to the uh, Nelson Mullins website and get my contact information. Yeah, and for the, the uh, Stark Integrity listeners, I just want to thank Bart uh, for participation again on this podcast, and he will be a frequent uh, interviewee on the podcast because he has a wealth of knowledge. And in this space with investigations, as well as uh, with respect to the CARES Act, uh, he's a go-to guy. So I would encourage you to contact Bart and uh, you know, or contact me and I'll get you to Bart so that we can actually do the investigation and make sure that if there's any potential issues you know, from a provider perspective, we want to cut off the potential QUITAM case. And if, if that's a self-report or if that, that's a repayment, it's better than getting involved in a False Claims Act case. Uh, Case, which Bart and I have talked previously on other episodes, which you can listen to. So thanks again, Bart. Oh, thank, thank you for having me, Bob. I enjoyed it as usual. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.